electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and a busy hour ahead. Markets are anxiously awaiting tomorrow's CPI report, but shouldn't even matter that much. One of our big investors says no, and if anything, it could lead to a big mistake by the Fed. And the bifurcation in banks. Wall Street remaining positive about the fate of big banks ahead of earnings later this week. Main Street more worried about the potential credit crunch. We'll dig deeper into that dichotomy. Plus, when you hear the words dividend payer, you typically think safety play, but you might want to think again. The dividend stocks you might want to avoid in this market coming up. Before all that, though, let's get a look at today's market action. Dow up 170 points at the highs, and we'll check in across the major averages right now, which are reversing to some extent their patterns so far year to date. Nasdaq had been up 15% versus Dow's 1% gain since Jan 1. But again, this reversal, the past several sessions, Nasdaq is the laggard down a quarter percent. S&P's up 8 to 41.17. Dow right now just off session highs. It's up about half a percent. Worst performing sectors today and the best. Here's a glance at where we stand. Technology down almost 1% for the laggard. Energy leading the way up more than 1%. Oil up 2% today. And let's dig further into why this tech underperformance is taking place. And it's largely the big cap names. Amazon. These are some of the worst names in the S&P right now. Down 2.5%. Microsoft down almost 2%. Alphabet, Apple holding up slightly better. And the best performer in the S&P today. How about CarMax? Shares surging despite a revenue miss, but CarMax nearly doubled their earnings estimates, had the biggest beat since late 2009. And the reason, if this sounds familiar to meta investors, cost cuts. The company pulling back on marketing spend, reducing headcount and so forth. But they did warn about inflation, higher rates and tightening lending standards. Keep an eye on that in future releases. And they pointed out that used car prices fell 9% last quarter and are now back to early 2022 levels. Again, the stock still up 10% today. Let's turn to the CPI report now and whether it's a red herring. Well, everyone's obsessing over the data release. One investor warns it may be overstating inflationary pressures. He's calling on the Fed to stop hiking rates and says the ball is ultimately in their court to avoid a recession. With me now is Charlie Babrinskoy. He's vice chairman of Ariel Investments. It's great to see you again, Charlie. And let's start with why you don't put a lot of uh, a lot into this CPI number. Well, I don't put a lot of uh, weight on the CPI number because the it's a lagging indicator. Unfortunately, the Fed puts a lot of weight on that same number. So the, the Fed is behind here in measuring inflation. When they try to figure out rent inflation, you know how they get the data for that? They call people up on the phone and they say, what could you rent your house for? That's a terrible way to measure rents. Actual rents are declining but the Fed measure still has rents increasing. So the Fed thinks that inflation is higher than it actually is. The good news is eventually their data is going to catch up with reality. That's going to happen sometime over the next couple of months. And they will realize that inflation is not going back to 2%, but it's going to be something like 3 to 4% this year. And that is as reasonable as we can get to after the Fed messed up and flooded the market with money back two years ago. So the good news is 
we're not going to get to 2% in the short run, but we are moving in the right direction. And even the Fed is going to realize that over the next couple of months. Do you think they're likely to? Be- so as of yesterday, Charlie, the market odds for a quarter point hike at the next meeting were 70%. I mean, that's right. pretty high. What do you think would happen if they hiked again here? Well, I think they're, they're likely to increase one more time at 25 basis points and then realize, I think they don't want to show panic. I think they don't want to show over concern about the banking system. And so they're going to um, one more time raise rates one more time. And then I think they could easily be done. I think uh, there's lots of evidence that bank lending is getting dangerously tight. I think there's lots of evidence that uh, the um, banking system had significant withdrawals from its deposit base. And the Fed is not naive enough to realize that to not realize that that's a serious danger. So the most likely scenario, this is one time where I think the market is getting it right, is one more increase in rates and then holding there and then slightly reducing rates in the back half of the year. And that sets up pretty well for the economy, pretty well for the stock market. I hope so. But it looks like a lot of this is already sealed. You know, when you see the leading indicators turning over and credit crunch, yeah, it, may, maybe you're right. And uh, But even jobless claims are starting to, to head north a little bit. They can't stay as low as they are forever. Well, we're still having pretty decent job growth. We have record low unemployment. We have that employment spread out over lots of the economy, different demographic groups. So the again, the, the consumer is 70% of the U.S. economy. The consumer is in pretty good shape right now. And most important, Kelly, a lot of the cyclical stocks, you say this is all baked into the market, but cyclical stocks, it's not baked into the market. The cyclical stocks are acting like we're going to have a recession, no, maybe even a pretty severe That's what one. I mean. Like, so in other words... What's baked in? The recession to me almost seems baked in. You know, the leading indicators are acting like it. The cyclicals are acting like it. So, sure, you could say, I don't think that's going to happen and I'm going to buy the cyclicals here. But you'd be going against, um, you know, what looks like the weight of history and the plain evidence in front of our eyes. Well, but the the weight of history says the way to make money in the market is to buy what others are selling and sell what others are buying. And right now, that is set up for cyclicals, because you're absolutely right. The market is acting like a recession is very probable uh, and maybe even a severe one. And and sure, I would say it's 50-50 whether we're going to have a recession at all, um, but we will get through this. But But the point is that the names right now that are expensive are defensive names, um, technology names that are viewed as being less tied to the economy, whereas what's cheap is what's performing well today, by the way. So names like Mohawk that I talked about all the time, oh, yeah. Borg Warner, the automotive supplier, um, and Apache in the oil industry. Those are names that are trading for less than 10 times earnings because people are worried about a recession. And if we don't get one, they're going to do very, very well. You bring up something that I was actually talking to a few other investors about today, which is is the stock market, are stocks in general still too expensive? You know, maybe Warren Buffett is buying shares of Japanese trading houses. We'll talk more about that uh, in just a moment. But the lack of buying of a lot of U.S. equities, doesn't that tell you something? I mean, there's, you know, they're, they're doing obviously a lot in the energy space. I know you're, that's a place you're looking as well. But, you know, even when I talk to bank investors, they go, you know, these stocks are not exactly bargains here, even after the re-rating that we've seen. So it seems like most value-oriented investors like yourself, like Buffett, are saying this market is not a bargain by any stretch yet. Yeah, the key is the phrase, this market, because I agree with you, you cannot look at the overall S&P 500 and say it's cheap. But as you know, the S&P 500 is dominated by large cap tech names, which are definitely not cheap. But value stocks 
uh, in certain cyclical industries are cheap. Goldman Sachs is trading at book value. That is historically cheap. It, it rarely trades at book value. When it has in history, that's been a wonderful time to buy Goldman Sachs. Again, Borg Warner is the number one company making propulsion systems, propulsion systems for electronic vehicles. It's going to have wonderful growth from here. It's trading at eight times earnings. Apache, there has been just not enough money getting spent in the oil sector, uh, and we're going to need oil and gas for at least the next 10 years, and that's trading at five times earnings. So you are absolutely right. The market is not cheap, but cyclicals and dis consumer discretionary and certain financial industry stocks are very attractive. Quick final word. I mean, when you look at the growth, uh, you know, what do we call it? Levitation <laughs> so far this year, and maybe it's coming to a halt right now. Um, perhaps people say that's all because we're now pricing in Fed cuts. And the, but I don't know. It just um, I know to someone like yourself, that's that's kind of counter trend. But uh, do, would you offer any comment about it? I mean, do you think there's a sea change taking place here? Yeah, I think you have to watch one thing, and that is that growth stocks, high PE stocks, tech stocks do very well when interest rates come down because their earnings are all in the distant future. And so a reduction in the discount rate is very helpful to those tech stocks. We've had rates, long-term rates have fallen this year. Remember, we had a 10-year that was over 4%, and now it's back down to like 340. That's very good for tech and growth stocks. My prediction is, as we get on the other side of these recessionary fears, interest rates, long-term rates, will actually go up a little bit, above 4% in the 10-year, and that will not be good for tech stocks. All right. We will leave it there, Charlie. Appreciate all your time today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kelly. Charles Babrinskoy with Ariel. Let's zero in a little bit on the commodities, which have been flashing some warning signals of their own lately. So far in April, aluminum is down around 4%, gold up 2%, Bitcoin surging 6%. We've talked about that one. What is this? Is it a classic recession trade? Let's take a look with Carter Worth. He's founder and CEO of Worth Charting and joins me now. Carter, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Likewise. Do, what do you, you know, divine? Of, Go ahead. Please. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so many moving parts and it's ever thus, right? Things that are dormant come to life, Bitcoin, um, and things that are loved are all of a sudden not loved. We know in the beginning of the year, the most popular embraced area of the market was financials and banks. Too bad. We know that tech was hated. Look at that. Right. Off to the races. And it, and, it, and it is always that circumstance. The net effect, though, of course, is the market is churning. It's not progressing. And we are at a major inflection point, it's usually fundamentals that come along and inform the pattern that is the market. And of course, it will be earnings. We shall see. My bias remains that there's little to no upside while unknown, but perspective, lots of downside. I remember when we talked in December about your concern for the S&P 500. And again, now we've seen this big liftoff, at least for the NASDAQ, you know, since January 1. Just before you joined me here today, you put out another note again saying, look out below, grab your hard hats, S&P 500. You know, so why do you continue to look at these formations and say they are telling you there's more downside than upside? Sure. Well, so remember, the weak form of analysis, if you will, is to stare at the chart of the S&P. It's really the principle that the parts compose the whole, the whole comprises the parts. We try to study the parts, as any good fundamental analyst would do. We look at the charts one at a time. And we obviously have a very bifurcated market. We know that we have tech uh, and telecommunications up 20 plus percent for the year, while you've got financials down six, seven. And one could say, well, okay, that's what rotation is. But the problem is that when we put out a note about a week and a half called the face of fear, 
is the is a good technique when one is concerned about perspective uh, weakness in the economy to move into large idiosyncratic growth names. It is good technique, right? Because they're defensive by nature. But it's almost to the point of hysteria. The move into Apple and Microsoft in particular, they're such big, mature names. It's almost like this. It's saying, I am so worried. I'm so concerned. Let me just give all my money to John Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, which is to say, here, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, I know Jobs is not with us. You have my money. I think it's the safest place to be. I don't think that's a particularly bullish thing. To me, it's it's um, right, but hiding. It's defensive. The only thing I would say in conjunction with that is look at Tesla. Look at DraftKings, right? <laughs> look at some of the most right. speculative stocks. I don't know if Tesla's that speculative, but, you know, there we saw other kind of high multiple um, tech trade higher and not just big cap tech. I, maybe just a comment on that, because I also I'm, I'm curious what, how much more upside you think there is in Bitcoin and gold and all the rest of it. So I guess the larger thing we're trying to trace out here is do you stick with what's been working or not? And, and all these things feel like they're working together. But actually, the correlation between crypto and the Nasdaq has broken down significantly this year. So we're trying to figure out right. you know, and, what and the and next leg I, is. It, Yes. I mean, good technique in principle, momentum's a powerful uh, force just to the downside, as is to the upside, and you want to generally respect it, unless and until it gets to be the definition of a crowded trade. And I think that's the circumstance you have. And remember this, the S&P 500 technology sector is right now trying to finally recoup all of its relative losses since the dot-com peak. So if you simply look at a, an RS line of the tech sector, as constructed by Standard & Poor's, it is yet to recoup all of its losses relative to the S&P since March of 2000. It's awfully close. It just shows how bad it is if you buy something at the wrong moment. But as to Bitcoin, you know, there's so many ways to look at it. This is obviously the most volatile uh, thing there is. So it's up 100%, 15,000 to 30,000. One could say that's quite bullish. Another way to interpret is Bitcoin, recently down as much as 77% from its all-time high, is now down only 56%. Hmm. Right. And so, in other words, you're still bearish on Bitcoin. Yeah, it just, it's come a long way. If you've got gains, I would book them. So what, Bitcoin, you see downside. S&P 500, you see downside. How much downside, by the way? Well, you have to assume it's not, uh, you know, talking about, you know, and you see this sometimes in, the, uh, in reports. We think the market can drop 3% here or rally another 4 Really? Who cares? I mean, it's got to be something meaningful. So I think you've got 8 and 10% downside at a minimum, whereas gold... <laughs> I think it's the place to be. Okay, so final question then. Uh, we've finally seen some high-yield inflows. First time, I think, in the past seven weeks. Largest inflows this year. Seen as a, another of these kind of classic signs of risk-taking. Uh, maybe, you know, corroborates the kinds of things we've been talking about in tech and all the rest of it. Um, is this a signal that you put a lot of credence uh, into? Well, what's interesting, if you look at an overlay, and you can do it between a high-grade uh, investment quality ETF, like LQD, versus junk, they're, they're trading almost, they're, there it is on the screen, they're, they're almost identical. Huh. And so right now there is no real warning in the chart of the HYG or the JNK. All right, Carter, 8 to 10% downside for the S&P is going to get a lot of people. Uh, well, no one wants to hear, no one wants to hear it, right? But, but does, right. Do, do you still have an explanation for why we had this big powerful counter trend rally the past three months? But again, it, isn't it just uh, the reciprocal of the losses that preceded? The equal weight S&P is barely up on the year. Yeah. It's all in a handful of names. Yeah, absolutely. Carter, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate yeah. it. Carter Worth from Worth Charting. 
Still ahead, the Oracle is doubling down on Japan. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway raising stakes in Japanese trading houses with potentially more to come. But legendary fund manager Mark Mobius says Buffett is buying at the top. He'll reveal the emerging markets he's investing in instead. Plus, earnings season kicks off on Friday with the big banks on deck. We'll hear from Oppenheimer's John Stoltfus on why he's trimming his allocation in financials despite remaining somewhat bullish on the sector. And as we head to break, here's a look at the markets. Dow's up 145, outperforming the S&P and the Nasdaq. The Russell 2000s also continue to be a strong performer, up almost 1% again today. The 10-year at 345. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Warren Buffett getting bullish on Japan, boosting his stake in five Japanese trading houses and says he may buy more. Shares of the company's all up more than 2% on the news. But my next guest warns Buffett could be buying at the top, and he is sticking to opportunities in emerging markets. Joining me now is Mark Mobius, founding partner at Mobius Capital Partners. Mark, it's good to see you again. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. What do you glean? And we should mention, by the way, this isn't just a one-off by Buffett. He's going to be on Squawk Box uh, from Japan tomorrow morning. This is a big play for him. What, why do you think that is? Well, if you look at the numbers, the P-E ratios of these Japanese trading companies are low. They're single digits. So that's number one attractive. Number two, they do pay dividends, 2 3% dividend yields. Uh, but as I've been looking at these charts, wow, uh, these are up in the, since 2000, about 100 plus percent. So it looks like, you know, he's buying at the top, but I think he's got a bigger fish to fry. I think he's got plans for something else. And he's already mentioned that he's planning some big deal, which may need the help of these Japanese trading companies. So I think that's another a complex aspect to look at. Also, he's uh, floating uh, yen bonds for Berkshire Hathaway, which is another factor which may impact what he's doing in the stock market. So it's it's a, a number of things happening here, but I frankly would not be involved in buying these uh, companies. Uh, the return on capital is not high, uh, uh, but the P's are low, but at, the prices have just gone up too much, I believe. Is it possible, though, that they make sense as a commodities play? If you were bullish, as we know he is, for instance, uh, energy is one of the only places in the U.S. he's pretty active right now. 
Yes, a good, very good point. But remember, these companies are not only in commodities, they're in a bunch of other things. They're all over the world in uh, consumer products, in manufacturing, all kinds of things. So yeah, there may be a, uh, a uh, something to do with commodities, but uh, it's probably uh, some fraction of what they're actually doing in their businesses. Sure. All right. So let me turn from Japan, which, as you said, is not part of your appetite. I know you're always looking at the emerging markets. A lot of people have been saying, hey, uh, some of them have disappointed this year. Brazil's been a disappointment. I haven't kept track of the panoply of others in Southeast Asia where you're typically focused. But um, I do know overall, I think emerging markets have been trailing to some extent uh, the U.S. market so far uh, year to date. Yeah, it has been trailing actually the last few years, but recently uh, there have been periods when emerging markets have outperformed. And now you're probably going to see outperformance as a result of China. You must remember when we look at emerging markets, we look at the index and the MSCI Emerging Markets Index now moving ahead and is beginning to uh, track the uh, S&P, as you can see from this chart. And we believe that actually will outperform going forward. Uh, mainly because of what's happening in China. Explain that, because most people have concerns about what's happening in China. Granted, it's the only place where we see, you know, M2 is actually expanding right now, but then they their inflation data was kind of surprisingly soft, and that doesn't really point to an economy with a lot of pent-up demand. Well, uh, if you look at the Chinese statistics, you have to take them all with a grain of salt. Sure. Uh, some of these uh, are fixed according to the policy of the Communist Party. So you have to be careful on that front. But it's clear that the Chinese are determined to boost the economy. Uh, They're moving very, very aggressively to attract foreign investments. And the local market is doing beginning to do very well. And of course, the local investors are a big factor in that market as well. So putting that all together, I believe that China will do a lot better than many of these other markets and that, as a result of it being 30% of the Emerging Markets Index, will boost the Emerging Markets Index and will attract a lot of attention on the part of investors. Sure. You know, quick final question on Taiwan, where I know you're obviously enthusiastic about uh, some of the investment and technology success they've had, but continues again to be overshadowed by China in this sense, perhaps in a negative fashion. What would you say to investors about both the opportunities and the risks there? Well, you know, there is a uh, interplay between Taiwan and China and a tremendous amount of trade between these two uh, areas. Uh, a lot of Taiwan companies are very successful in the consumer area, for example, in China. The biggest soft drinks manufacturers, the biggest instant noodle manufacturers are Taiwanese. Uh, and in the tech area, China has been very, very dependent upon Taiwan. So I don't think that's going to happen uh, very soon in terms of uh, downturn in trade between these two countries. But of course, because of the U.S. sanctions, uh, Taiwan will have to be very careful of what it ships uh, and gives to China. Right. Nevertheless, I believe they're still going to do very well in is, this relationship. Is it true that Taiwan is actually your biggest holding, geographic, you know, about 20 percent of the portfolio? And why is that? I mean, is that just the strength of the semiconductor names? Uh, that's right, because we believe that these so-called fabulous companies, uh, companies that do the software for the uh, fabs, uh, for the uh, the large manufacturers like TSMC, are going to do very well going forward. They're very cheap now. They're growing at a tremendous rate, and they have tremendous potential going forward. 
Well, in that sense, you agree with, uh, you know, the tech community here in the U.S. and all the others who have identified these sec sector winners. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. It's good to see you. Thank you. Mark Mobius with Mobius Capital Partners. And don't miss that special Squawk Box event tomorrow morning. Warren Buffett will join CNBC live from Japan starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. We very much look forward to seeing that right here on CNBC and also streaming on Peacock. Still ahead here, 2023 could actually be all about reglobalization. one strategist insists. He says the post-pandemic supply chain will actually be a boon for some foreign markets and economies. We'll tell you which. Plus, meanwhile, here at home, small business optimism is sitting at recession levels. We'll talk about the biggest pain points and what it tells us about the labor market going forward. And as we take a break, here is the Dow heat map. Uh, as you can see, 30 names there uh, with Microsoft and Caterpillar, I'm sorry, Microsoft lagging and Caterpillar leading the way today. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. everybody and welcome back to the exchange. Dow remains up about a half a percent while the S&P is down a quarter of a percent today. Big cap tech is one of the draggards. Here are some of the movers this hour. Moderna is one of the worst performers on the S&P today. It's down two and a half percent after an independent board deemed it too soon to declare early success for its flu vaccine trial. The board recommended that testing continue. Meantime, flooring giant Mohawk Industries is one of the biggest gainers after an upgrade to buy at Loop Capital. It's up almost 6% today. Recession fears and an earnings slowdown are already priced in, Loop says, and that further bearishness is over, overly exaggerated. They also say profit margins should improve as material and labor costs get back to more normal levels. And of course, shares of WW, got to watch this one lately. Formerly known as Weight Watchers, soaring another 51% today after closing that acquisition of weight loss prescription firm Sequence on Monday. Goldman upgraded the shares to a buy on that news, saying weight loss prescriptions are the next way for companies to gain business in a shrieking market for traditional diet plans. Now to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. And here, folks, is your CNBC News, News update at this hour. New details from the leaked classified Pentagon documents show that Ukrainian agents have pursued drone attacks inside Belarus and Russia, contrary to U.S. and Western wishes. Two documents appear to show Ukraine launching operations inside other countries, which may cause some allies to reconsider their ongoing support for Kyiv. Ukrainian President Zelensky's office did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Elizabeth Holmes has been ordered to report to prison while she appeals her fraud conviction. The disgraced founder and CEO of the blood testing company Theranos was found guilty of fraud in January of 2022 and sentenced to 11 years in prison back in January. Holmes recently gave birth to her second child and is expected to report to a minimum security facility on April 27th. And the FDA's commissioner, Robert Califf, telling CNBC that health misinformation is lowering U.S. life expectancy and he expects it to get worse. Uh, the commissioner said there is a need for better regulation to root out misinformation and that he has made it 
Kelly a top priority. Back to you. All right, Tyler, see you soon. Thank you. Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby making remarks on the economy. Let's get to Steve Leisman with the key headlines. Steve. Kelly, thanks. Yeah, uh, new Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby, who just recently took office, making some of his first comments on the economy and monetary policy and the recent banking problems, saying the Fed should take financial stress into account when setting monetary policy. Uh, Goolsby, who's a voter this year, will say uh, that the right monetary approach calls for prudence and patience. Financial tightening, he says, caused by banking problems could mean that monetary policy has less to do. He goes on to cite private sector analyses that show financial stress could be the equivalent of 25 to 75 basis points of tightening from the Federal Reserve. Financial stress can have a material impact on the real economy, uh, Goolsby says in his speech, and workers, businesses, consumers will su- can suffer immense harm if, finan- if these banking problems turn into a financial crisis. He says the Fed needs to be on the watch for the real possibility of tighter credit conditions. Now, it doesn't seem like he's completely saying the Fed shouldn't hike rates. So take a look at this quote here. Given how uncertainty abounds about where these financial headwinds are going, I think we need to be cautious. We should gather further data and be careful about raising rates too aggressively until we see how much work the headwinds are doing for us in getting down inflation. So aggressive is maybe the key there, maybe not. He says the main way to handle financial stress should be supervisory and regulatory tools that the Fed has. Situation is better, he says, in the great financial crisis because of banking reforms and higher capital and liquidity ratios. He also says that uh, times of financial stress are a terrible time to uh, um, uh, default on the nation's debt during periods of financial stress. So Kelly, not a slam dunk. I have to say he's probably one of the most dovish comments yet or uh, maybe not quite alarmist, but concerned comments yet about the recent banking problems leading to financial stress. And maybe one of the first uh, Fed speakers really to link it very closely to what should be done with monetary policy. Steve, that jumped out to me as well. I was just looking to the markets for any reaction. Dow is still kind of unchanged around that plus 150 point of view. But would you contrast this also with what we heard from Williams, where I've, I've definitely seen some reaction to that, where he da- seemed to downplay that somewhat. And uh, people were kind of surprised. And here, Goolsby does seem to be making a more um, logical, you might say, argument. Well, here's the thing. I, I guess I'd describe it this way the visual thing. Williams has sort of an arm's length distance with the financial uh, problems we've had. He says, well, they're sort of over there. We need to watch them. But my initial reaction is it's not really a very big problem. Um, Of course, you did see that big decline in lending uh, that we got in the uh, Fed's report Friday afternoon. Uh, Lending remains relatively high compared to before the pandemic, but it was one of the biggest two-week declines or one-week, two-week declines that we've had since 2009 on a percentage basis. Uh, Goolsby seems to feel that financial stress is a little closer, a little more worried about it, and a little more likely to say it it will, it could have an effect on monetary policy. I, I can't read this, what he's saying, Kelly, and say, he would vote against a rate hike. He is, of course, a voter at the May meeting right here. But I guess if, if we see continued weeks of banking uh, a pullback, uh, banks pulling back in lending, um, as well as some attenuation in the uh, inflation rate, 
Uh, it sounds like Austin may be one of those people who would who could be convinced not to vote for a rate hike uh, at the May meeting. Yeah, well said. Steve, thanks for bringing that to us. We appreciate it. Steve Leisman and again, Dow hanging on to its gains here. Not much change yet. Still up about 150. Coming up, a make or break moment for Netflix. Shares have more than doubled off their recent lows with the next earnings report just a week away. And it's the first since some big changes like adding an ad tier and cracking down on password sharing. So why are the analysts split? We'll reveal after the break. Stay with us here on The Exchange. Welcome back. Big banks are set to kick off earnings this Friday with J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo and Citi all reporting. While there's only one sell rating on the street among those three names and that honor goes to Citi, my next guest is reducing his rating on the sector and trimming his allocation to just slightly above the S&P 500's weighting. Joining me now is John Stolfus, chief investment strategist at Oppenheimer Asset Management. John, it's good to see you again. And uh, yeah, let's talk about these financials a little bit. What's your kind of thesis going into this earnings season? Well, first, thanks for having me on the show, Kelly. Great to be on CNBC with you. Well, going into this season, of course, we've got uh, uh, the journal over the weekend says that, that the consensus is looking for a little over 6% negative on the on the earnings for the quarter uh, overall for the S&P 500. Uh, we're thinking when it comes to the financials, it'll be very much an idiosyncratic kind of uh uh, time that we're going to be going through with even within the big banks, we will see some winners and others not so much winners. Uh, but we downgraded uh, we uh, financials uh, in the S and P 500, moving from an overweight to uh, just a, a market perform. So it's not a severe downgrade. Uh, our thoughts on that were essentially you've got a market that is very much uh, subject to day-to-day -day news items. Bears always ready to grab any catalyst mm. to sell anything lower. And so why be overexposed to uh, the financials right now? But intermediate to long term, you know, you got to own the financials because everything runs on credit. Well, I was going to ask if you kind of got caught by the same sort of thing that everyone else did, which was, oh, financials should have a great year because rising interest rates and all. And, and then we all went, OK, or maybe not, because this is the flip side of the coin. So I, I suppose to put it differently, my question would be, why keep them at sector weight? You know, why not go to underweight? Well, because the S&P 500 is the large caps. It's the big ones. And within that within that sector itself, you've not just got pure banks, but you've got banks that are very much diversified in terms of uh, whether it's investment banking or it's uh, it's trading, what have you. Uh, uh, it, it, it's uh, it, they really are offer a, a, a diversified approach to financials. Uh, we were we we didn't get caught up uh, as much in the the regionals because while we had exposure and in, in indices to the S and P six hundred, which has quite a, a weighting in in uh, regional banks, uh, we didn't extend ourselves uh, in regionals. We were concerned that they were just going to have trouble with interest rates rising to a point where uh, mortgage uh, uh, people who needed mortgages were likely not to, uh, to were likely to back away before moving forward. Sure. So we weren't terribly surprised. We were surprised, by the way, to the extent that regulators had really uh, taken their eyes off. Uh, apparently, SVB. Let me ask you about utilities, which is the only place that you're kind of have a have a lower uh, weighting than than the broad market. Why is that? Well, re related to, to to the Utes, uh, we think it's, uh, you know, you still have an opportunity here to see the Fed raise further. We don't belong to the camp that it's uh, at, at any sure thing for the Fed 
uh, to either pause or to actually cut rates this year. Uh, at least for the first half, we expect them to continue tweaking higher. Uh, so long as uh, the uh, inflation rate remains uh, concerning to them, uh, longer term, we don't know if they're really going to go to this 2%. We, we think they might have to settle on 3 We can only remember that many economists were actually uh, complaining that 2% inflation was not enough to really uh, see an economy the size of the U.S. grow. That's sort of like, be careful what you wish for, right? Right, right. Uh, so looking at things more broadly for you, you're still, you know, 75% in stocks, 15% fixed income, little bit of cash, little bit of real estate, no alternatives, little bit of commodities. I mean, is this a portfolio allocation that would maybe work better in 2019 than 2023? Or, or why don't you have bigger kind of shifts here towards some of the, you know, the, some of the things that people say, and we know how wrong footed that can, you know, we can get caught by that, but that they say, other types of asset classes might perform better, um, maybe even fixed income now to kind of to the point that you're making. But um, well, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, you know, Kelly, at the beginning of the year, everybody was downplaying what was going to go on with technology. We were we were very well exposed to technology. Uh, uh, we uh, from uh, from the uh, uh, from the lows last year on October 12th, a lot of people were predicting the death of stocks and growth and and uh, we maintained garpier growth and growthier value uh, we've done quite well with it uh, we think that uh, equities when we look at it for intermediate to longer term investors especially in a world where a lot of people are investing for retirement and are looking towards uh, you know a, a retirements that may last much longer uh, than they might have ever expected Equities are a central place to be, and so that's why we're, we're not day traders. If we were trading uh, on a trading floor or in a trading room or DIY uh, investors at home sure. uh, for the excitement, we might very well uh, be moving around more uh, actively. But our thought is here, this is just the end of free money. That's what the Fed is saying, and it's a good thing. It means bond issuers have to pay for the privilege of borrowing money. And people who buy bonds get something back. And historically, I've been in this business, it's going to be 40 years in a few weeks. Hmm. Uh, but I can remember where interest rates were actually close to double digits and equities were moving higher. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. John, really appreciate your time. Thank you for bringing your perspective today. Thank you. John Stolfus with Oppenheimer. Now, Wall Street may think the worst is over for the banks, but it's a different story for small business right now. This comes as the NFIB's optimism index slipped again in March and has remained at recessionary levels for nearly a year. Let's get to Kate Rogers with those details. Kate? Hey there, Kelly. As you mentioned, the NFIB out with its monthly read on optimism for March this morning that shows an overall dip of 0.8 points to 90.1. As you mentioned, the group calls these recession levels where they've hovered now for over a year as those small business owners wait for a downturn. While inflation and labor are still key issues and the economic outlook for the next six months remains quite low, commentary from the group's chief economist Bill Dunkelberg really stuck out to me this morning, a mention of banking concerns weighing on owners 
donors and sentiment, saying, quote, there are major uncertainties ahead. Most immediate is concern that a banking crisis could develop. All of this weighs heavily on small business owners, almost all of whom now see deteriorating business conditions and poor prospects for sales. The number of owners who are borrowing on a regular basis, that's unchanged at 30 percent. But a net 9 percent reported that their last loan was harder to get than prior attempts, up four points. That's noteworthy and something that we'll be monitoring as the fallout from Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank continues. One bright spot, though, the group says, is that consumer spending is keeping Main Street afloat for now. That being said, the NFIB also notes that economic prospects are dim for small business, but mentions the recession has yet to appear. So a lot of mixed messaging here, but that banking crisis line, not something you see all the time, Kelly. And this, I think it's one of the most important data points, honestly, out there right now, because small business has been 90% of the job openings, so much mm-hmm. of the excess job creation in the last couple of years, and a slowdown here is absolutely worth uh, watching. Kate, thank you. Our Kate thank Rogers you. reporting out west. Still ahead, not just the big banks on deck with results. We have big tech also getting ready to report, and Netflix will kick it off. Its crackdown on membership sharing has the street divided over what to expect. We've got the details next. Welcome back. It's time for today's edition of Tech Check, and we got to talk some Netflix. Over the past six months, the stock is up a nice 60 percent. The shares have more than doubled off their 52-week low, and now they're only about 10 percent off their recent highs. And with the next earnings report due out a week from today, analysts are debating how the company's crackdown on paid sharing is going. Let's get to Julia Borston for those details. Julia? Well, Kelly, this is the topic of debate. There are four analyst notes out today weighing in on the implications of Netflix's all-important crackdown on password sharing, whether it'll drive revenue growth or cause subscriber churn. Morgan Stanley, Barclays, and Baird analysts issuing notes maintaining their hold ratings, J.P. Morgan defending its overweight rating and raising its forecast for first quarter subscriber additions in its note out today. Now, Barclays notes that the rollout of paid sharing has been slow than the company originally guided, saying, quote, paid sharing could be a meaningful new revenue driver. However, there doesn't seem to be much priced in for execution risk, saying we believe Netflix will need other growth drivers such as advertising and gaming to start contributing soon. Meanwhile, J.P. Morgan, a little bit more bullish, writing, quote, we continue to view the paid sharing rollout in conjunction with advertising as a major part of the near-term bull thesis. Now, looking ahead to earnings, which are weak from today. This is the first quarter for which Netflix has not shared a subscriber forecast. So we'll have to see how much this quarter's results follow the typical trend of Netflix having a seasonally weak first quarter when it comes to subscribers. Last year's Q1 was the first time in years that Netflix had lost subs. Kelly? But now, even when I read uh, recent data from Bernstein's internet survey, Julia, they say that Netflix has reaccelerated momentum in terms of its uh, downloads and, and streaming Uh, and that sort of thing. And and that data seems to point to this renewed momentum they're having. Yeah, it definitely seems like renewed momentum. It was interesting. I was just reviewing all of the the quarterly subscriber numbers from last year, and it was the first half of last year that was really weak. The company lost over a million subscribers, but then in the second half of the year, things really accelerated. So the question is now what what kind of growth they see in terms of the ad business, the fact that they do have this ad supported option out there now, whether that helped them. And then also how many people who are subscribers are so drawn to the content that even if they're, say, borrowing 
having a subscription, maybe they can get some of those people who are borrowing um, to start paying right. for their own subscription or the people who are paying and lending out their subscription to pay for maybe a bigger, more expensive option. <laughs> exactly. Julia, thank you so much. We appreciate it today. Julia Borston keeping her eye on Netflix. Uh, we're back after this on The Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dividend payers are on a red-hot run. They paid out a record nearly $150 billion last quarter. But with slowdown fears persisting, should people pile in for protection? One of my next guests says, not necessarily. Joining me now here on set at CNBC headquarters is Chad Morgan-Lander. He's Senior Portfolio Manager with Washington Crossing Advisors. Welcome to you. And Gina Sanchez is here. She's Chief Market Strategist at Lido Advisors and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Gina, first, pound the table on dividends for me because I'm certainly hearing a lot of talk about this right now and why it's the right strategy for a market like this. So look, the challenge to dividends is just that they're going up against um, they're going up again against higher interest rates. But if you if you pick the right stocks, you also have upside to the stock as well. So it's not just a pure dividend play. We think quality is important, and there are parts of the dividend universe that are really expensive, defensive but expensive, we like to call them. But we're looking at the cross section of really great companies who make tremendous revenues, profitable, and whose dividends are growing, and that's in the healthcare sector. So we think that there's definitely places where you can identify still cheap stocks, sure. great outlooks, and everything that goes with that. J&J, Abbott, Bristol-Myers, obviously J&J &J a little more controversial, but Abbott, Bristol-Myers, 3.5% or so we're talking. Chad, I don't know if that sits off any alarm bells for you, but you're saying, obviously, when you pile into dividends, don't just look for the highest yield out there on the street. I mean, how do you, what are the thresholds of the things to look for to know that your dividend payer is going to be safe? So not all dividend payers are the same. High dividend payers more likely are similar to junk bonds. Uh, many of the high dividend paying stocks have a large amount of debt on their balance sheet. They have poor returns on their investment when they reinvest back into their business. And they may very well have erratic earnings and revenue growth. Hence the reason why you want to stay away from those low-quality, high-dividend payers. Do you think they use the dividend as a way to lure, to basically say, this is all we have to offer? Well, pretty much, because you have low returns on invested capital, meaning you reinvest back into your business and you don't even earn the dollar that you reinvested back into your business. Hence the reason why we've done a lot of research. You want to be in rising dividend companies right. that are quality. Quality is different for everyone. Our definition of quality is quite unique. If I had to put you on the spot and say, what dividend payout do you start to get nervous? Is it 5%, 6%, 7%, 10 I mean, would anything below? I, and I know that's not how you would process it, but just to kind of generally speaking. So probably around 25 or 35% is a healthy dividend payout. In terms of income, the income but I meant from, in terms of the from, dividend yield. From dividend, oh, dividend yield, you, you should focus on dividend yields below 2.5%. Really? So you're looking for companies that or have high revenue growth, they have high returns on their invested capital, and very little or no debt on their balance sheet. Uh, you stay there, you can get a f fair return with much less volatility. Okay, Gina, I'll give you a quick last word here, because these companies would be a little above that threshold, but do you feel comfortable with them? Actually, we agree that high quality is absolutely important. It's core to our strategy, um, and we are looking for that. And there are definitely places like utilities and, you know, like uh, uh, staples yeah. where that is the case, where you're getting below that 2.5%. The reason that we're highlighting healthcare, it's one of the few places where you can get high quality, strong balance sheet, strong financials, yeah. and a yield that is actually competitive to the tenure.
I, and I learned, and we did it all in about two minutes. But thank you both so much today. I really appreciate it. Gina Sanchez and Chad Morganlander. Such an important topic here. Everyone's talking about dividends. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for your time. Power Lunch is coming up right after this break. There's Tyler getting ready. I'll see you in a minute. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.